Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. So we finish out a loaded chapter before embarking on two really fun ones the next couple of weeks. I'm not stalling at all, I'm sure. In God's Word, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the humor in your word. We thank you for the wisdom of Jesus, and we ask that we would learn from it now by the Spirit. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, I've waited as long as I possibly could. I'm sorry. You get an Olympics introduction. If you've been at the church a long time, you know I love the Olympics. Every time they come around, I have to do at least one intro from the Olympics because I am, true confession, an Olympics junkie. If there are Olympics on, and it's not rhythmic gymnastics, I will watch it. I won't watch that. Or figure skating, I won't watch that. Not saying it's not hard, saying I won't watch it. This year was the year, I think, though, that it was a fun thing. I I watched a lot of sports that I I don't normally watch because I was able to watch it on... uh, on the internet instead of watching it on a television station, and so able to watch the sports that I've never been able to really kind of pay attention to, which is really fun. I uh, was able to watch a lot of the, the badminton and the mixed doubles badminton, which is amazing, watching, you know, two South Korean teams tear it up or two Chinese teams tear it up, and some dude who's 6'4", hitting the you know, shuttlecock at about 156 miles an hour. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. But it is able to, you know, interesting kind of watching all of these other sports to realize that in many cases, those are sports that uh, I have or did play. 
Not well, mind you, but I played them. I grew up playing badminton. It was one of the family games we used to play in the backyard all the time. My sister and I, I don't know how many hours of badminton we've spent playing, but we've played. And it's intriguing kind of watching it at an Olympic level, on a gold medal level, and watching it kind of in my backyard. And kind of have this kind of thought struck my mind watching, going like, I don't think we're playing the same game. Like, I mean, I know we have all of the same rules, but nothing about what you're doing and nothing about what I have done is in common at all. Right? Watching what you do is, one, impressive beyond all belief, but looks nothing like what I even understand. It's the same thing with the swimming, right? I, I can swim, right? I'm not like that. Wow. The diving, oh, that's my favorite. I mean, I can cannonball, right? I might be able to turn while I do a cannonball. It might not be forward, but I can turn while I do it. Four flips later, three rotations in with a splash smaller than my cup of water being poured out in the carpet in front of Unbelievable. It's like they're doing something just completely different. We have a moment like that taking place in the text today. Jesus has been, it's the last week of his life before his death and resurrection. He's been um, very busy. Had the triumphal entry at the beginning of the week, Sunday. He's gone into the temple, cleansed it on Monday. He started teaching in the temple on Tuesday. And his teaching has become, uh, we might say, uh, intentionally confrontational. He's been off to the side in the temple in one of the uh, galleries off to the end and uh, generated crowds around him. I mean, they just had a coronation event a couple of days prior, and all of the famous people are coming to engage him. He's had the Pharisees, they're the political and theological conservatives that uh, major on the minors to the nth degree. He's had the Sadducees, which are the political and theological liberals. They are uh, too cool for school and don't believe in the supernatural. He's had the normal Jews. He's had uh, kind of all of the bits and bobs of the culture around him uh, engage him in conversation. At this point, almost all of them engaging them for the purpose of tricking him and trapping him. Until, interestingly, this one. This is the first one where we get to see there's a, a noticeable change in interaction. Matthew notes that the gentleman who's asking the question of Jesus is specifically testing him. But Mark specifically notes that the man was overwhelmed at the wisdom of Jesus. So we have this kind of moment, much like my moment in, the, in the, uh, observing the Olympics, where a gentleman is, is kind of shocked and surprised at what Jesus is doing with the Old Testament and saying, look, we have the same source material. But what you're doing is completely different than what I do. Right? We both have two rackets, a net, a little birdie that we hit back and forth, but the way it works is completely different. And I need a little help understanding. Now, his motives aren't entirely altruistic. Matthew notes, as we've said, he's trying to test Jesus. He's not just trying to highlight the difference or to understand, but this is the first time that we really get to see one of the enemies of Jesus asking 
with appreciation for how wise the Lord Christ is. As a result, also, we get a question that's actually a good question. Many of the questions that the Pharisees have asked Jesus throughout the book have been what we might generously call stupid questions, where they're trying to intentionally trick him. It's obvious it's a dumb question. Even the previous section was a dumb question by the Sadducees. Some people say, oh, there's no stupid questions. That's not true. There's plenty of them. We get to see them in the scriptures all over. This one, however, is an excellent question. What is the greatest commandment? Which one is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, again, because we've grown up, most of us, under the New Testament, that we don't really kind of think about any of the tension that that question might uh, kind of bring to bear for the listener. But for the ancient Jew, that was a really significant question, even more so coming from the Pharisees, those that actually tried to follow the law. And here's the reason. The Jewish law, the Old Testament, they had counted it out and had 613 commands. Hear that number again, 613 commands. 248 of them were positive and 365 of them were negative. So 248 you must do, 365 you must not do. That is a massive body of work. That's a lot of laws, right? I mean, that's almost like the DOT or something around here, right? The the massive body of laws, the IRS. The Pharisees had what they viewed as a very positive relationship with the law. They loved it. They believed in it. In fact, so much so as they would say that the, the, the law was the foundation for their relationship with God. They had reduced their relationship to God to ultimately a relationship with the law. They loved it. It was what shaped how they thought and how they felt about God. Obedience is how we find his favor. Obedience is the height of religion. For them, obedience was the height of religion. In fact, actually, it was so important to them that when they interacted with the law, they kind of built buffers around them so that they wouldn't accidentally transgress. It would be like kind of if you were to, say, drive your car and say, I'm never going to to violate the speed limit ever, ever, ever. Well, you know, sometimes when you go downhill, your car kind of accelerates on its own. So as a result, to make sure I never go over the speed limit, I'm going to drive 10 under everywhere I go. I'll never, I'll never speed, right? If I'm driving 10 under everywhere I go, I'll never speed. I'll never hit, you know, 51 and a 50 or 66 and a 65. It'll never happen. They had done that with God's law, and they had built buffer zones around all of his laws so that they were easier to kind of obey without accidentally violating. Again, we've talked about them with great frequency, but their laws regarding the Sabbath uh, and sometimes regarding tithing were like almost comedy. Uh, they were comedic in how they applied God's law. Say, like, you were allowed to walk twice the distance between your house and the synagogue on Sunday, and anything more, further than that was considered work. You know, you were allowed to go to and from church, and that was it. Anything more than that. You know, 
that's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Old Testament says, but that's what they had said. They had created kind of buffer zones. Well, the problem is with 613 laws and roughly 613 buffer zones, those buffer zones begin to overlap and you arrive in all sorts of conflict. Well, what if I need to walk 10 extra steps in order to help my neighbor on the Sabbath? Is is that violating the Sabbath? What if it's 20 extra steps to help my neighbor? What if it's 30 extra steps? Well, suddenly then I'm confronted in a situation where I have to choose between which law, as they perceive them, which buffer zone, I'm going to obey. Am I going to obey the commandment regarding the Sabbath? Or am I going to obey the commandment regarding helping my neighbor? Which one of those is more important? You see, his question is actually a really good question. He's saying, Jesus, in essence, 613 commands, could you give us a priority list? Could you tell us which ones are the most important so that we know when, it, when there's it ever a perceived conflict, we know which ones we have to keep and which ones we get to kind of fudge a little? Good question, right? Jesus' answer is uh, right and true and good. It's not what he's looking for. It's the right answer, and it's a helpful answer, but Jesus doesn't stop. If, really, if the passage had ended in verse 40, they would have, the Pharisees would have been really kind of uh, not pleased, but would have been satisfied. It continues on and gets into trouble after that. But Jesus answers first. What's the great commandment? What's, what's the number one? What's the priority that, that overarches everything? What is the law that defines all laws? In regards to God and his people. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and Mark adds in with all your strength. With the totality of who you are. The overarching principle behind God's law is God's people are to love Him with fullness of person, with our bodies and all that is seen, with our insides and all that is unseen, with the fullness of how we have been made. We are to love our God. And what he's doing here is he's correcting the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had reduced religion to a law set that is transactional. A a transactional means that if I give, I get. And I can know what the exchange rate is. It's one of the reasons why when I talk to parents about disciplining their children, I tell them, never let the children know what the terms of failure are in advance. Because it gives them the ability to say, yeah, it's worth it. Right? Disobedience, totally worth it. Right? Miss curfew grounded for a week, it's a really fun time to miss curfew. Totally worth it. That's what the Pharisees had done to religion, had been reduced it to the law set. To say, 
what I do is how I can control whether or not God is mad at me or if he's happy with me, whether or not he hates me or if he loves me. It's transactional. And what it had done is it had placed, in essence, the Pharisees in charge of their own religion. All you have to do is follow the laws. And you know what? Granted, 613 is a lot, but it's manageable. At least they pretended that it was. What Jesus does, though, is to kind of cut through that with a knife and to to split it wide open and say, no, 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 you misunderstand. The purpose of the law is not to create a transactional relationship where you can say, hey, this is worth it. This is how I can control how God is happy with me. No, the, the, the heart of the scriptures is to show a way for you to love God. In fact, actually, if we really wanted to kind of paraphrase it, Jesus is, like I said, quoting Deuteronomy 6, if we wanted to paraphrase it in, in our kind of mental understanding, I would say it this way. Christians are called to love God in the way that he loves us. Right? Christians are called to love God in the way that he loves us. You realize all of those kind of modifiers afterward, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your might, or with all of your strength. All of those modifiers are simply descriptive terms to help us understand that I'm called to love God with all that I am. That no part of me gets to be pulled aside, no part of me gets to be left out, no part of me gets to be withheld. What biblical Christianity is aiming for is for me to love God with all of who I am. For me to love God with the body that he's given me. To spend the body that he has given me and the energy that he has given me and the breath that he has given me and the heartbeats that he has given me to spend those in his service loving him. To spend my mental faculties, the mind that God has given me, the intelligence or lack thereof that God has given us to, to spend those in his service. It's one of the areas where I think kind of American church is a little bit failing. We're not talking about it from the perspective of this is why sexuality exists. It's for it to be spent correctly, rightly oriented toward God in His service. There's no part of you that is left out. There's no part of you that exists for something separate and private away from God. All of you. All that is seen and all that is unseen has been fashioned to love God in the fullness of who you are. And again, you you want to know what that looks like. Well, again, this is actually just a, a, a reference to how God loves his people. 
This is what we talked about and read already in John, 1 John chapter 4. God is love. What part of God does he reserve away from loving you? Have you ever thought about that? In terms of God's love toward you, what does he withhold? Nothing. Nothing at all. His love, he is love. And so every relationship, every interaction, every interchange that he has with you and he has with me as his people is one that is fully loving. Motivated by love, filled with love, acted out love. And this is an amazing thing to think about that Jesus put on a body second person of the Trinity stepped into Jesus, put on a body, became man, so that love could be outworked inside humanity. Because love is full, it's rich, it's true, there's nothing withheld. He loved us first. He's loved us fully. He's loved us richly. His command here is, again, more than anything, a reflection of how God interacts with His people. The amazing thing is this is one of those those kind of theological truths that I think many Christians kind of intellectually can go, check, I agree to that. Intellectually, I understand that God loves me with the fullness of who God is intellectually, I understand that God doesn't withhold any of his love from me. Intellectually, I understand that all three persons of the Trinity are fully involved in fully loving me. Intellectually, I understand that. But emotionally, well, I begin to doubt that the second that times get hard or when I'm angry or when I'm sad, or when I'm upset, or when that person hurt my feelings for the 738,000th time, I begin to wonder or question, is he really fully invested in me? Specifically, I address the young people in the room for just a moment. You should hopefully have figured out already in your life, as young as you are, that your culture lies to you at every opportunity. That's what culture does. It is one gigantic lie. As a pastor, one of the great lies that I have watched take root is that currently, the way that our, our culture talks about marriage is that marriage is the longing for another person to fully invest themselves in me. Marriage is the longing for another person to fully give themselves to me. Marriage is the endeavor for another person to fully love me. Wrong on all three counts, actually. 
Marriage is an opportunity for you to serve your spouse. What you're actually getting at is the promise here. What you're actually getting at is something that God himself says that he does and no one else is able to do. You can't do that. Which is why, again, so many I see and interact with get married and then get wonderly, wonderfully discouraged. Well, this, my, my spouse isn't fully loving me. They're not, they're not loving me with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their mind. They're never supposed to. They're supposed to serve you, but it's not about you, friend. What we're doing is we're trying to find human relationships to create a transactional relationship so that we don't have to contemplate the love of God. Again, I I said we we probably agree to this intellectually, but emotionally it, it becomes very difficult for us to put it into practice. It becomes very difficult to believe it when it comes time to think about marriage. When it comes time to think about our sexuality, we hear it all the time on the news, right? My sexuality is mine. I get to decide. I'm the one in charge of that. It, it exists for me. No. It exists for God. And pastorally, I give just kind of one kind of serious concern over this for all of us, I guess. The longer that you're in the church, the longer it is that you walk with God, the easier it is for you to become satisfied with half-hearted love. To just kind of settle. And I might just lovingly kind of poke at you a little bit and say, have you settled? Have you settled, one, in your love for God, that it's just kind of meh, it's lukewarm, it's enough, I guess. Or two, and this is actually the far more dangerous, have you settled in your understanding of how much he loves you? Where you've stopped spending the energy to appreciate how much God loves you? This is one of the neat things of Christianity is you actually have to work at understanding how much God loves you. That's why all of this is kind of phrased in in imperative language, command language. You have to work at understanding how much God loves you. And, and, excuse me, I'm going to be quite candid. Some of us have quit working at that. Some of us have already begun to be discouraged as to why our love has grown cold. Some of us, why our faith has grown weak. Some of us have not yet found those two consequences, but it's coming. Are you working hard? At understanding God's love for you, how he loves you with all that he is, and therefore you love him. He loved you first. Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives a second command, uh, and this is an appropriate uh, addition. The first one has that relationship with the Lord, the vertical element. The second has the relationship horizontally. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love this. Jesus presumes already that you love yourself. That's a good thing. You should. You're made in the image of God. 
You should love yourself. The problem is that for all of us, that love has kind of been on steroids for our entire life and has, you know, turned into the Hulk that's all so big and overwhelming that it it drowns out all other loves. Love of self has overtaken every other love. It's a a good love. It's a design that you're, you're supposed to. But it's become wrongly ordered. I do really appreciate, though, the way that Jesus specifically kind of anchors this one, though. You shall love your neighbor in the same fashion that you love yourself. In the same manner, in in the same way, to the same scope. It is a joy in my job that I cannot see our hearts. I would have quit a long time ago if I could. But if we were going to be honest, I mean, if we're really going to be honest, all of us have a great love affair, a great love story. And the great love story that we have been living our entire lives is the love that we have for self. We have fallen in love with ourselves a thousand times over and in a thousand different ways. And if you're one of those people that you struggle with self-loathing, friends, all that is is just self-love worked out negatively instead of positively. It's the same thing. But interestingly, you think about serving others, to think of them the way that you think of yourself. To love them to the extent that you love yourself. To to love them in the way that you love yourself. With the energy that you love yourself. With the joy that you love yourself. Now, I, I do have to kind of give an aside. This is aimed at all of us, but again, young people in the room, this is extremely important for you. Our current culture defines love as one very key thing, endorsement, right? That that is the definition of love currently is, if you want to ask just average person out on the street or if you average movie, average Hollywood, whatever it is, love means somebody telling me that I'm okay the way that I am. In fact, actually, love means that they tell me I'm good the way that I am. Okay, this is for those of you that are old enough in the room to have watched kind of the, the agenda for homosexuality worked out in our culture. That is, it's always been about endorsement. We've never wanted to have permission. We've always wanted to be told they're doing the right thing, that, that we believe in you, we endorse you. That's what our current culture is using kind of definitively as love currently, which is why you have so many just kind of constant aberrations springing up in public. And if you say anything negatively against it, oh, suddenly you're a hate monger. You're not politically correct. Cancel culture will come and get you. Because we have equated love to endorsement. That's actually 100% tragic. It's evil. Because love has so little to do with endorsement. God has loved me with a full heart. He has never once endorsed me for who I am and how I live. In fact, actually, he loves me so much 
And he sent his son to die to pay for my sins. He raised him to victory so that victory would be shared with me. He sent his spirit, oh poor Holy Spirit, living inside me, sanctifying me from the inside out, forcing me to change even when I don't want to. God loves me so much, he doesn't endorse my behavior, he changes it. Love of neighbor is a willingness to interact with them with the joy and delight and gentleness and kindness and hope that God shows us and that we show us. You want to understand what it means to be kind to your neighbor. Again, look at the way you, you think of yourself. How quickly we are to show ourselves the benefit of the doubt. I didn't mean to be nasty, it just came out. Right. I was hangry, it's fine. Give me a little food, it's fine. Do we show that same kind of consideration to our neighbor? Or do we then immediately impugn that onto their character? Right? Well, They were nasty because they're a nasty person. I'm not a nasty person, I was just hungry. They're nasty. Right? They're a terrible human, I, I can't stand them. The speed with which we forgive and forget. Some of us, it's like we have Alzheimer's for our sins. Right? We do them and instantly we've forgotten But you can name your spouse's sins from 58 years ago. Wow! Photographic memory for that. The extent that we're willing to go to help ourselves is shocking. We'll spend all of our resources, emotional, financial, we'll spend anything to help ourselves. Sometimes we won't cross the street to help our neighbor. I love how Jesus anchors this one in the love of self because in doing so, it is so incredibly convicting. Because I'll do just about anything to help me. But it's a lot harder to help you. And interestingly, what Jesus has done in these two short statements it's kind of unraveled the entire argument, the entire theory of what the Pharisees were holding. That the law is a basis for simply kind of checks and tallies to say, I'm one of the good ones, you're one of the bad ones, I do the good things, you do the bad things. Is Again, kind of a transactional thing, and instead God cuts to the heart of it. Because God loved you first, if you're a child of God, you are to love him with a whole heart, with all of who you are. If you are a child of God, because God loves you with a whole heart, you are to love others with a whole heart, with kindness and gentleness and affection. Not just measured in the hands, but measured in the heart and measured in the emotions. Now, the conversation doesn't end there. The Pharisees want it to. I think you kind of, the way this reads, it's almost like they wanted to leave, 
but Jesus starts talking before they can kind of skulk away. Right? You, they're like nudging each other, like, go, go, go. He's still going. He, he gets them before they have a chance to go. Ask them, again, a legitimate question. Really good, actually. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this puts them in a terrible bind. Jesus is very wise. Because the grammar doesn't actually say it, but the circumstances do. Jesus is asking about himself. He knows that he's the Christ. They know that he thinks he's the Christ. In fact, I think they even know that he is the Christ. But the issue is, how do we answer? Because if we answer wrongly to say, Jesus, we think you're worth killing, which they do, well, that kind of goes badly for them because it disagrees with the entire Old Testament. So you can't say that, right? We don't believe in you, Jesus. But if they say, well, he's the son of God, he's the son of David, he's worthy of our worship, well, Jesus has them on the hook right there because the answer is, well, you got to do that to me. It's a very good, it's a very good question. He's forcing them to kind of interact with who his person is within the context of the scriptures. Do you believe what God has said about who Jesus is? They give a brilliant answer. It is like the most excellent cop-out that you could think of. I probably could not think of a better one if he gave me 10 years to think about it. Whose son is he? Well, um, yeah, here we go, we're going to punt. He's David's son. That's who the Christ is. The one thing that we know the scriptures say, the one thing we actually know about Jesus, he's a Jew, he's a son of David. Uh, We can actually trace his lineage back, and they could have done that too. We're going to give a non-answer answer. Who is the Christ? Well, he is the son of David. And in doing so, they have sprung Jesus' trap. He then begins to explain the Bible to them. He takes them to Psalm 110. How is it then, if the Christ is the son of David, how is it that he's referred to both as the son of David and the Lord of David? That doesn't make any sense. If he's just the son of David, then that's all he would be. How is it then that he's not just that? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is he both? Because Jesus is actually pointing them to the reality. They wanted to make religion a transactional thing that you could manage yourself. They wanted to make religion a thing that they could be in charge of. I mean, they're the Pharisees. They're kind of running the show in, in some fashion. They wanted him to affirm their religion to let them be the boss. And interestingly, in this final paragraph, Jesus, if nothing else, undoes the reality that they're the boss. Who is the Christ? Well, Jesus is the Christ. And why is that significant? Because he's one, both the son of David, he's a Jew, he's fully human, But he is David's Lord, for he is the Lord of life. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of glory. He is the way, the truth, and the light. He is the only hope. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord. 
That's actually why you get 46, which just gives me the giggles every time, right? Yeah, they stopped asking him questions after that. They were like, I'm not dumb enough to do that, right? I got wrecked way too many times. I'm not talking again. Because Jesus has them. The Bible proves that he is the Son of God. And that's an important thing for us for two reasons. One, it's easy for us to try to talk about loving God and loving neighbor apart from Jesus. This is ultimately what liberalism was in the 20s. It was an attempt to talk about religion, to talk about a relationship with God, to talk about a relationship with neighbor apart from talking about Jesus being king of the world, being divine, being the Lord of life, the way, the truth, and the light. And while thankfully, this is not a liberal church, we're not uh, theologically liberal people, that's what I mean when I say liberal, I'm talking theology, not politics. The danger is we begin to talk like liberals without believing it. And I watched this happen not too long ago as an athlete interviewed after a uh, sporting event. They had done something really well, and an uh, interviewer comes up to ask him, you know, how did you feel about scoring the touchdown point thing or whatever it was? I don't not important. And the athlete says, I'm so thankful. I just want to praise God, you know, give all, all praise to him. I'm so blessed to be able to do what I do. I'm just so thankful, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, Christian social media absolutely begins to fawn over this gentleman, goes absolutely nuts, goes bonkers. Dude's a Muslim, right? They haven't done their homework. He's praising God. And he's praising a demon, honestly, is what he was doing. There's a, a great danger that we as Christians begin to talk about generic God, and we forget that the linchpin to the entire relationship is Jesus. He's the key. Secondly, I love how this passage is structured because it does, I think, in some fashion, warn about the danger of getting preoccupied with minor things. The Pharisees were perhaps one of the greatest people groups in human history to major on the minors. They had taken those 613 laws and multiplied them until they had just the most comprehensive pedantic little things of little things of little things. And Jesus kind of cuts through it all and says, look, all of Christianity, all of religion, all of life is about knowing the Lord and being loved by him, loving him, and taking care of your neighbor, and that's only done through Christ and Christ alone. And friends, I certainly would say for us, there is a grave danger that we might easily get pulled off of that focus I'll give you a little hint. Every denomination does that, right? Every denomination always has. Churches individually tend to. I mean, you look at the really good ones from the early church, by the time they get to the book of Revelation, man, half of them are getting negative things. A grave danger that we ourselves might do this. So uh, maybe it would be appropriate for us to just take a little bit of caution, a little bit of care, Spend a little bit of energy working hard at understanding how God loves us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Christ who lived for us, died for us, was raised for us. Lord, we do pray 
that you would fill our hearts with love for you and our hearts with love for neighbor. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.